This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. Well, hi, Gary. Welcome to Talking Cities. Great to have you here. Thank you very much, James. Very pleased to have uh, been able to accept the invitation. So, great. Thank you very much. It's wonderful. It's great for us to have the Chief Planner in New South Wales on Talking Cities. Now, I always start by asking each one of our guests, what is their favourite city and why? Gosh, as a planner, that's an interesting one. I think Milan in Italy is my favourite city. I just find it such an interesting place and I always seem to want to go back there and keep going back there. It's as if I haven't discovered every part of that place. I know that when you talk about the edge, the suburban parts of Milan, it's uh, it's not necessarily the uh, prettiest and most attractive place in the world, but certainly the um, the inner circle of Milan is somewhere where I really enjoy really enjoy going. The, the Dumo, the, uh, I think it's the Santa Vittoria um, Arcade in the middle of uh, in Milan is probably one of my favourite shopping spaces in the world i just just love that space and then the big square outside and how the streets lead into it uh, and how you can sit down in a restaurant and just watch the world go past and the tram shunting past it just seems to be a space that i like and yeah uh, yeah i i if, if i go back to italy i normally like to go back to milan so. well i haven't heard that before i mean we've had rome uh, a, a couple of times here on this but uh, but milan that's great i mean but as you say i think um i actually haven't been to milan but uh, as i recall it actually does have quite an industrial fringe doesn't it uh, it has, has a big industrial fringe and that's yeah. sometimes when people talk uh, negative it's 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 about that industrial fringe um and it is the um it, you know, often it's the industrial part of cities that people are most critical of because they're not necessarily the prettiest parts. And uh, I suppose when you contrast the edge to what's in the middle, it is that contrast that uh, that's, that stands out. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, industry is critically important, isn't it, to any city? Oh, would... hey, uh, contemporary regional planning would suggest if you don't get your employment right, you're not going to get the rest of your city right. So it's a really significant part of your um, your city building exercise. Yeah, and I guess um, I guess the way industry looks uh, in a city is changing too with technology. It's not um, as dirty as it used to be, is it? No, and I think that's uh, that's that's one of our challenges that I think we involved in planning have got to get our heads around because the the idea of um, of separating uses because of incompatibility, which is something that dates back obviously to the the rationale behind planning in in the um, in, in the past, it's somewhat somewhat changed with the the way we look at uh, we look at the employment. The employment's changed as we've moved from a manufacturing to more of a service economy as we have more technology the new employment i think is really something that is is the greatest challenge to our metro planning at the moment i'm not sure we've got our heads around it but mm. that's that's work in progress yeah but i, I guess even manufacturing mm. has got cleaner as well and you know advanced robotics and uh, and 3d printing and the like it's it's not not dirty it's not noisy um, no and i suppose what uh, the, the question that comes up there is um Perhaps in the future we'll be talking about employment utility type zones or some or some other word mm. rather than industrial where you separate your industrial from everything else and, and the, the whole idea of being able to have mixed use residential mixing with commercial mixing with a lot of other stuff it's clearly front and center of the radar and as you said before if you've got 3d robotics i mean i've heard a, an analysis done recently where it was less noise having somebody manufacturing 3d components in an apartment than it was having the noisy apartment residents on the other side yeah yeah so you know clearly what you're saying the, the planning has to get um to get into a space where it can appreciate those changes and, and look away, if you like, from this 
traditional zonal separate of, of, of uses, which to some extent came out of the, the, the suburban as well, where we were able to choose where we lived, choose how we got to places, and it wasn't until we started to get congestion. But that suburban model was, was traditionally driven by the separation of an industrial area, yeah. a residential area, a commercial area, a shopping area, when really we're moving into an era where there's an amalgam of that stuff starting to come together. And maybe that moves us into some debates about what what might a planning dialogue be in the future? Mm. What might um, lead out of a good strategic commentary in the future? It might be that we talk about places and then talk about the control of different uses in places around principles rather than trying to have specificity of separating of uses in different ways. Yeah. The challenge is that this is creeping up on us uh, very quickly. You know, advanced robotics and particularly, you know, 3D technology. Yes, I mean, we've had 3D technology for a while, printing that is. But uh, at scale, technology is moving so quickly that um, planners have to think hard around how to accept some of the the aspects of the future and technology that we don't actually know right now. So um, there's not certainty at the moment around technology and planners like certainty, don't they? Some planners do. I suppose if you've cut your teeth in the last 15 years as a planner and 15, 20 years, you come out of a background of, of, of certainty and rules and regulations. But is it rules and regulations or core principles that we're trying to achieve as planners? And mm. is the only way you're going to deliver principles through a a zonal separation designation type model Mm. and I think that's the challenge if someone was to say to me Gary I bet you're a stickler for rules and regulations around planets and no I'm a stickler for principles Mm. around creating places because there might be multiple ways of creating things Mm. and I suppose one of the um, one of the aspects in my career of of what's a good strategic plan nine out of ten times a good strategic plan is one that generates multiple options multiple solutions and potentially keeps the the, the door open yep. as long as it can for inco- incoming solutions, incoming options. I think that that's the way we sh- should start thinking yeah. as planners, being able to communicate better to, yep. to, to, get, our, to get our messaging across. Yeah. I, I recall at a certain point in my life where I was asked to do two town centre plans where I had this one town centre that had so many issues that hadn't been grounded yet, so many issues that any one of them had the capacity to fling this centre in in a completely different direction. And so I remember saying to the council at the time, perhaps the best plan is no plan, which having just done this very strong regulatory framework for this other town centre, you know, councillors, number of people drew back when I made that suggestion. But the the no plan, best plan model was very much one of departing from the rules and regulations, talking about, say, 10 core principles which were important to the evolution of this particular centre, and then saying to people basically that over the next five years we were expecting a series of, of things to happen. We were expecting to experience a, 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 a whole range of different proposals and applications being put to us. And the most important thing for us to do was to articulate these 10 principles and we would assess incoming applications back against these these 10 principles. Did they value add to the issue of connecting A to B? Were they protecting this? Were they maintaining this, that and the other? And that's the way we assessed applications. Mm. We had a, a single designation. Any use was considered in the context of those those ten principles. 
What happened in that one was that after five years, the uh, shopping centre had been expanded, the new shopping centre had been built, the transport facilities had gone in and the bypass had gone in. Mm. So suddenly we were seeing the materialisation of this centre. Had we put in a plan, we could have actually suffocated it if we got that um, wrong as part of that process. So yeah. that principles-based model worked very well for us. So I look at that model now and I'm starting to, to look at perhaps this notion of placemaking but in a broader context, placemaking both in the physical sense, yep. but also placemaking in the context of accepting the new economy and the sorts of things that you may want uh, a, a place to have and a place to be able to generate. So placemaking much broader than just an urban, but placemaking in terms of the contribution, the economics, the uh, the investment that was going to be necessary to um, to help these places materialise. So I can actually see parallels from that experience I had yeah. in, in the past going forward. So, for example, I, I often talk about activity precincts or activity clusters or activity nodes. It could be that the primary use that you identify, and it's obviously something that we have here in Sydney, might be a university, it might be a hospital. Yeah. That's the primary driver of that particular activity node. But then all around that, you might say that it's important to enable the establishment of boutique hotels, the establishment of student accommodation, the establishment of retail to support that. Mm. Will that be achieved if you try and zonally separate all the uses? Mm. Well, probably not. It might be the case that does it matter if you get if you get restaurants and cafes in in one old building, and do you get a research facility in the building next door, or do you have multiple uses on multiple floors? Provided it's true to some core principles, which are relevant to the DNA of that particular precinct. So it might be, for example, that that university or that hospital has a relationship to a, to a, an existing railway station, has connectivity to the parks, has heritage buildings. Mm. They would be the core principles that you've got to be true to, by, but at the same time inviting in other uses that yeah. make that activity node start to work and enables the clustering of other uses around it. So if you go to an old city like Oxford in, in, in the UK or Cambridge, they're, they're activity nodes. They're a whole mishmash. You come out of the lecture room, into the street, down to the pub, into the cafe, up to your student accommodation, meet people. And it's that it's that mixing that I think mm. we've got to be far better at because that's what the new economy will be sniffing out. Yeah, it's interesting. That, I mean, they're commonly referred to as innovation clusters now, you know, Oxford and, and Cambridge um, in the new the new economy. So <laughs> you're looking at me with a, with a wry smile. Well, I'm looking at you with a wry smile because I think that's a misuse at the moment. I think it's easy to talk about these innovation precincts you don't parachute in an innovation precinct in my mm. opinion what you do is you build an innovation precinct yeah. around some primary uses and the primary use could be education, education yeah. it could be a hospital, hospital. medicine mm. but don't discount other drivers that might yeah. be causing this cluster it could be around an entertainment um, venue an entertainment yeah. precinct yeah. and it could be around certain other types of employment that are starting to evolve around creative industries and all yeah. those sorts of things so my view on an innovation precinct is a much broader enabling around the, the clustering of complementary uses yeah. which don't offend the core principles that you may sign off yeah. as part of the DNA and the and the value fabric of a particular area that you designate. Yeah. For some of our listeners, um, this planning utopia we've just talked about, the place-based uh, planning and um, non-statutory, non-zoned planning, what's the flip side to that? What's the counter-arguments? Is it harder to rebuke it in land and environment court, for example, if someone wants to do something that is against those principles? I don't think so. I've um, been in 
involved in court cases in my life, it's it's, it's always easy to say, mm. um, oh, it's the uh, the legal profession. They're, they're the problem around this. But what's interesting, if your legislation doesn't enable a different way of thinking as, as its primary driver, so it's, if you're not acknowledging the importance of strategic planning and storytelling mm. in, in your legislation, mm. then it's it's very hard to, to necessarily see a strategic principles based planning model getting up because you'll always gravitate back to the traditional zonal separation, the language that we, we do use in our, 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 our planning system. And I'm not saying you get rid of the, a, a lot of what's already in the planning system. But I think what you need to do is, and we hear the term deregulation used frequently, you know, it comes out of the Productivity Commission, it comes out of a whole series of sources. I actually think it's a re-regulation. Mm. You have to have regulations. You do have to have rules and you, yeah. and you do guide them. But it's a re-regulating. It's, a, it's an, another way of looking at mm. the same sorts of issues. And I can recall a, a court case many years ago where we were clearly in, a, in this particular centre that I was involved in the planning of, we were clearly wanting to connect the traditional mount, uh, uh, traditional uh, Main Street town centre to a railway station that we had um, convinced the, the, the transport people to put in to a new harbour development precinct that we'd convinced the developer to, 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 to put in. So having done all that work and clearly articulating that in the principles around this plan, it was important that those linkages were maintained and they were they were clearly spelt out in that planning instrument. We had a development proposal that turned its back mm. aggressively on it, tilt up slab walls, etc. And I can remember the judge in the court case asking of the um, planner on the other side, mm. which part of this story of connecting A to B to C, Mr. So-and-so, do you have problems understanding? Because mm. I can see clearly that there is an intent to do X, Y, and Z. Mm. And we were we were successful in that appeal. Mm. So that's just an example of how that translate mm. into an, an, an appeal situation. Mm. Um, but no, it doesn't mean jettisoning the whole zoning. It just means mm. looking at it in a different way. Because there is there is another side to the zoning. And I, was, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine recently. And that is sometimes the zoning gives certainty. Sometimes there's a need to have certainty mm. from both an investment point of view and what you don't want to, to necessarily come in. So, But it, that positioning would, in my opinion, come out of a good strategic planning analysis. So mm. for an, a reason that you decide that you're going to behave or your planning delivery platforms must behave in a particular way, they gain that context from the strategic planning commentary as to why that particular regulation ruled approach mm. might be used. Mm. But it comes out of good strategic planning. Yeah. And that's the same with the principle-based model that I talk about as well. And do you think we've got that opportunity in Western Sydney now with all that uh, the greenfield development surrounding this um Sydney Second Airport, Western Sydney Airport? I think we do. I think we've got some great opportunities. And my, my only issue about the, um, the Sydney West Airport, I think we have to get, as, as our commission have said to us, which I think they've got it absolutely spot on, the idea of the three cities, I think is a very yeah. good strategic upfront statement of intent. You get it in your head straight away what spatially that represents in Sydney. I do think we have to make sure that the Parramatta, the middle city, works well because that creates the context for the connectivity of the third city and the parkland city that they talk out in the west. My only concern is that um, maybe we need to throw a couple of chill pills out there mm. because we're talking about something that's that's 
a lot further away. Mm. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in the UK at boarding school, I was 12 years old. Gatwick as an airport was contemplated when I was a 12-year-old kid. It still doesn't have, as I understand, the, the flight volumes that we're saying are going to come into Badgerys Creek yeah. within the um, initial period. Now, it's taken 45 years and it's still not at those, those flight volumes. Now, obviously, there's lots of things to happen. But it's really important to get the that Western conversation, the context of the sequencing out to it, but also the fact that we've got a, a short, long planning horizon, the, mm. the, you know, the zero to five to ten. We have a medium, long planning horizon, which is probably the 10 to 15 to 20, which is, is the assembly, it's the, it's, it's the starting to put in the stuff. And then we've mm. got the long long planning horizon which is the operationalization of uh, an aerotropolis and a western sydney model mm. but we seem to be trying to go from the front end of the short long which is us talking about the western suburb mm. immediately to the long long in one hit and mm. i just feel that we have to be very careful it's just a personal opinion because if we put the wrong stuff in during the front end of the short long or the middle of the medium long we could compromise some of the huge opportunities that are presented in the, the long, long. Yeah. So I just, I just, that's my feeling at the moment. It's everyone seems to be clambering over it, which yes, make the comments about the future infrastructure, make the comments on the shaping, mm. but just be careful that we don't start putting uses in there because everybody sees that opportunities too early, yeah. and that we compromise some of those opportunities. It's just a, an observation and a warning statement that I've that I'd say to people. Yeah, that is a good warning for our consultants out there and our planners out there and anyone else that's listening to Talking Cities right now. Now, you've been Chief Planner in New South Wales. Is it 12 months? Is it longer than 12 months now? It's just on 18 months. Okay, now, yeah. 18 months. So, so time what, goes by and we're having fun. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Um, so what, what are your observations of the New South Wales planning system um, over those 18 months and uh, what are your recommendations? I have to be very mindful and diplomatic on, uh, on my response to that. The reason I came down here was because there was such a lot going on. There was some core decisions that had been made around um, around infrastructure, the sorts of things that I, I have felt for a long time were necessary to start shaping and um, it was very much an infrastructure led fabric that was coming out of that discussion. New South Wales probably has a reputation which uh, I, I wouldn't argue against of being probably one of the most complicated planning systems in Australia. Hmm. Coming down from Queensland, a lot of that complexity is, 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 is evident to me but having said that, I equally have to be respectful that each one of our planning systems in each one of our states has evolved for a different set of reasons yeah. and, and primarily driven by different sectors for, for, for different reasons. So this it's been very much driven by the demands and, and the translations from communities to elected representatives to the instruments and response tools to that, which I think have become very... Um, very precautionary focused, mm. focusing very much on what might be a problem and therefore another sticky plaster yeah. to, to, to overcome the problem. We now have a situation where we're talking about a changing economy, we're talking about a rapidly evolving and changing metropolitan area, particularly for Sydney. Some of that precautionary approach might not be able to keep up with, with, with some of the needs and some of the demands. And mm. so I think the decision to put in place uh, the legislation, which, as I understand, was bipartisan, for the commission mm. is a is a huge step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, because of again the model that is is the Sydney model, multiple local governments across a, a broader frame. Mm. 
when I compare that with my backyard in, in Queensland, when I did a lot of planning there, Brisbane City Council taking up a huge area that probably would represent up to 20 local authorities in some of the parts of Sydney, yeah. and then four or five other metro councils clipped in around it. Mm. Very different structure to do regional planning. Yeah. And so the, the idea of having a commission to, if, if you like, bring together that overarching fabric, I think is a huge step in the right direction. I think the, the, the notion of looking at districts is something that is a way of unpacking the, the, the uh, line of sight from the overarching metro to the subparts and then in turn down to the LEP. So I think the fabric and the logic behind it is very good. Yeah. And I think um, as well as the commission, there's also the city deals process, you know, from our observations, seems to be bringing the local government areas together, um, in Western Sydney particularly, to, to come together to talk about investment in their region, in this in the third city, the Parkland City. So perhaps city deals is another um, area for us to look at to promote greater collaboration between councils that are uh, typically just cut off collaboration at uh, at their particular boundary their local government area boundary would you agree with that you Uh, i mean you're looking uh, at me no no i'm looking at you because i'm probably agreeing with you but it goes back a lot further than than the um the proposition you're putting to me then it goes back to the fact that the absent partner in planning in Australia for long, long, long years, and it's come up at different times through the through better cities and through various programs, has been the um, has been the federal government. Mm. So it's really encouraging to to hear a conversation that talks about the um, that level of government participating yeah. in the planning agenda. I go back to um, the COAG agenda, I think probably five, six years ago, where we were talking about the importance of overarching good strategic planning. And and by having a good strategic plan, um, the legitimacy for a metropolitan area putting its hand up to the feds and saying, you know, please, sir, we deserve to be helped out, yeah. comes out of the fact that you've demonstrated that imprimatur through good overarching metro planning as opposed to lots of people making ambient claims across every type of of anything. So if it is clearly demonstrated through a a metro planning framework that key pieces of infrastructure which the the federal government can participate in, it's been talked about for a long time, then I think there's that um, strong connection between the legitimacy of certain infrastructure to make regional planning happen. But I think equally it's important, and I remember having this conversation with somebody recently, I said, for the federal government to put the flag up the pole Mm. and say, where we see good metropolitan regional planning, where we're demonstrating coordination between local governments, where we see this type of behaviour is a place that we're going to gravitate to in terms of our city building program. Yeah. And, to, and to actually say it as simple as what I've just said to you. So we think of um, uh, Launceston in, in Tasmania, we yeah. think of Townsville, Townsville. Like in, in Queensland, yeah. where there is a clear demonstration of a, of a collaborative model. The risk of your investment dollars materialising and leading to something is reduced, so your ability to manage that risk is reduced because you've done good strategic planning as part yeah. of that process. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's a great thought. What do you think about um, Western Sydney, particularly in the Southern Corridor? I think the some of the local government areas there are actually saying, you know, we, we'd actually like to take more people and increase the density in these areas and rethink about um, land use. You know, typically they're single-dwelling allotments that are that are 
uh, have been the typology out in many of these areas and um, I think they'd actually like to increase density to provide for um, investment in infrastructure like metro, light rail and the like. Um, is that uh, something that you think could uh, could fly in Western, in southwestern Sydney I, particularly? I, I, I certainly do and I think it demonstrates that um, that opportunity to be to be collaborative and some of the councils are, are getting out there and thinking in that collaborative way. Yeah. And obviously that leadership will also come out of the regional plan and the district plan or the, or the metro plan and the district plans. Yeah. So a, a council made a comment to me recently when I was out talking to one of the councils. He said, if I can see a strategic framework, my appetite to manage risk and make decisions that align to a particular direction is reduced. Yeah. Or so is increased. My appetite's increased because of 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 that ability. And I think there are parallels if if you if you think of it like like that. Um, And look, I've I've spoken to a lot of councils around uh, New South Wales, particularly in the metro area, and there's certainly an appetite to think that way. Yeah. That's that's um, it's really promising, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing it um, in the private sector. We're actually seeing councils coming together and talking about how to do things better, how to do things more sustainably, how to deal with resilience, um, the importance of resilience. And I think we're very uh, fortunate in Sydney, particularly, and Melbourne as well, to have had the Rockefeller Foundation, yep. uh, hundred resilient cities. You know, essentially put the resiliency lens over our city, and through that process, they've engaged with a lot of the local government areas. Um, and that's I think that's added a, a greater depth to the conversation around. Strategic strategic planning, um, how to safeguard for the future, how to essentially understand how to essentially proceed after shock in our economy. Yeah, as long as long as, as long as people who use the word strategic planning know what strategic planning means. Mm. And 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 I worked very hard over the last twelve months and, and, and the department's positioning and the government's positioning around um, introducing strategic planning to the front end of LEP, so through strategic planning frameworks. I think what that does, it will allow the the, the local flavour and the local interpretation, the local responsiveness to be better articulated and it should then become more apparent as to why councils are potentially behaving in a particular way which aligns with the desire in a strategic planning sense to respond to the district planning framework and and, and the metro framework. But um, it's teaching people how to think strategic planning as well because it hasn't been part of our planning vocabulary for so long. Yeah. And so that's going to be a challenge as well because you'll often hear people say, oh, yeah, but councils don't have the resource. We don't have the planning staff. Mm. A lot of councils are saying to me at the moment, we we lose our planning staff to private consultants. Mm. So the, 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 the resourcing is also an issue around that strategic planning. I think we really have got to seize this moment that's presented around strategic strategic planning framework. Yeah. How do you involve the, the community? How do you engage with the community more through a strategic planning process and the current process? Because I, I think about um, on the northern beaches where I live in Monavale, there was a, an uproar recently to a master plan for the ta- Monavale Town Centre right. um, where there was an increase in density um, around the town centre and you know it, did, it just really did not get accepted by the the, the local community. How, how do we offset these sort of uh, frictions um, through the strategic planning process? There's probably two responses to that. One, in the absence of having an overarching metropolitan strategic plan, sometimes it's very difficult for local councils to to become maverick in their own rights um, when they're taking on change in their local Mm. communities. If they're changing because it's being consistent with an overarching broader community good, well, then perhaps it gives the, the, the local councils more comfort around doing that. 
But nevertheless, um, those changes should be um, acknowledged as perhaps um, being required, especially if you just put in a brand new railway line, for instance, or yeah. brand new metro. But how you change should be of local choosing. Yeah. That brings in that consultation side of it. The other thing about strategic planning is that a good strategic planning commentary is perhaps the best way to communicate with your community mm. because the notion of going out and talking about zones and overlays and codes confusing people, people's eyes just glaze yeah. over yeah. but if you talk about a narrative about what a place might be the sorts of things that might happen mm. you will keep your engagement going people get quite excited by it and if you then say to people well really this this plan is your plan we will make sure that the sorts of statements that you make about connecting this open space to that open space are, are upheld in the planning document yeah um would we then need to refer every DA application through to you if it was consistent with the strategic planning commentary yeah. that you participated in? Yeah. And I've found over my career, people are not silly. They will turn around and say, well, if the plan is true to the consultation as a reflection of what we participated in, well, then um, we probably don't need to look at every DA application coming through. Technology has, has moved ahead in leaps and bounds recently. How does technology play a role in communication for planning and planning in general? I'm often criticised for my, for my lack of prowess around the, the, the technology and the new opportunities, but one thing that you just have to accept, we communicate now in 2017 and, and going on in a way we've never been able to communicate, mm. communicate before. I say of this, this, this type of new strategic planning model that I talk about, that one of the keys to promoting this type of model is getting better at communicating. Yeah. And it means that planners have got to get better at communicating, understanding, mm. demonstrating, modelling. There, there is enough technology out there now mm. that when you go to public meetings, when you engage with community groups, that you should be able to show people. Now, very often developers and proponents will show that in an incredibly sophisticated way. And I think we've got to get far better yeah. at using the technology, using the tools, finding new communication chat-type frameworks where we can um, we can explain those sorts of things. I've certainly found in my career that um, when I have been able to sit down with broad community groups, and I talk up to, say, 350 people in a community hall, and I explain a, a, a lot of the rationale behind the positioning that our particular council may have found itself or the government, people won't dismiss you. They're not, they, they're not silly. They know, mm. they know when you're trying to... Um, try it on. Try it on. They, yeah. they'll, they'll pick it up very well. And if you've, if you've made a couple of poor decisions in the past... They'll be they'll be watching you, and you'll be you'll be watched very carefully. So that's why it's important to have your credibility around your your frameworks. But my simple answer to that is, I think there's a great opportunity for consultants, people out there, who are very savvy around the technology to to really help engage the community yeah. in a meaningful way. Yeah. I, I don't think that the planning process and the planning processes have have kept up at all. Yeah. With, I mean, you, you have a situation now where there's an event in the world and everybody knows about it and will have a comment, well, why can't we use the same sort of technology to some extent in yeah. planning? Yeah, well, we can. The, we techno can. the technology is the there. The technology is there, but I just don't think we, we, we use it. And I'm not savvy enough to know what can be done. I would say to people, I need something to do X, Y, and Z. And my view is that there's probably a lot of people that will come to me and say, well, that's fine, Gary, we can, we can provide you with that as a solution to that yeah. sort of thing. What about... Um, 
land use planning and transport planning. You know, I, I think if we look at Sydney, I think uh, historically we haven't always got it right. And you'd look to the you know the North West Corridor, uh, up to Bella Vista and Rouse Hill and the like. We planned those areas. We allowed for growth in residential, and then we didn't allow for mass tran- a mass transit solution. But it would seem to me that now we're looking to better integrate uh, mass transit with land use planning. Am I delusional? Would you agree with me? No, or? no, you're not delusional. But I think I think that that whole discussion takes place around the transitioning and what the transitioning for a particular urban area or or, or city metro area might be. The one point that just doesn't seem to come up in the discussion, but it is a nub of the complexity of of answering that question of yours, is that when you transition from a suburban, Hmm. car-driven urban fabric, which is more reminiscent of the West West Coast America model of Los Angeles and, and, and those sorts of places, to a more urban fabric... It comes on the back of public transport. Now, if you've invested solidly, because that's the choice of the community, that's the way they wanted to go into a, into a suburban fabric, and you now realise that um, the, the new direction is much more of an urban, yeah. more sustainable, more resilient fabric, and it seems to me that the response from the community is very much warming to mm. good public transport, well, then you've got to retrofit yeah. your metropolitan area. So the retrofitting presents a different type of challenge. So yeah. But you still have to make the overarching land use decisions to then see the type of transport investment that's going to help shape and move in that direction. Yeah. But you do have a, a, a different model which, which tends to, to not come up in discussions. When you retrofit from suburban to urban, you go through a transitioning phase that's, we're talking 35, 40 years. Yeah. Um, and it's important to be looking after one side of the equation at the same time as you're introducing the, the new form in the other side of things. Mm. So it's, it, it is a, a unique challenge and it's not necessarily, normally I would say to you, in a high level position, it should be vision, strategic, land use, employment, housing led, infrastructure response, mm. But you mustn't discount the fact that you've also, when you're doing this transitioning process from Mm. suburban to urban, you've also got intermediate stuff going on, which actually overlaps the two two subjects together as part of that process. So... Do you think we're in quite a unique position um, in Sydney? I'm focusing on Sydney right now with the amount of uh, infrastructure investment we've got going on with the metro, this, you know, the northwest metro I just mentioned, and now we've got the central metro into the city. Um, we're looking at west metro out to Parramatta, and we're looking at the southwest metro. This is uh, the perfect storm in a lot of respects, isn't it? I think that um, your point is well taken. I opened this interview by talking about the reason I came to New South Wales. The reason mm. I came to New South Wales is because I firmly believe that that type of investment um, is, is, is shaping. It will yeah. help shape that transition from a suburban to an urban. Did we deliberately do it that way? I suppose mm. that's the interesting question. I, I think we may have done things to overcome certain problems, but what we've actually done is, is set up a very good template mm which obviously the uh, work that the Greater Sydney Commission can now do and and, and onto the back of it. I mean, I think that this investment that's going in over the next five to ten years will shape Sydney for the next 50, 60 to 100 years. I'd have to agree. But it's it's very important to get it right then, though, isn't it? If it's going to be a fifty-year longevity of each of these projects, the the TODs, the transport-oriented developments at the stations, how how do we ensure things like design quality um, as we think about? These spaces, these these new urban communities at transit locations. It is it is of absolute prime 
consideration because, as I said before, that we will change, I think, is, is, is without question. How we mm. will change is their is choosing. If we put in a, 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 a series of dud responses around, around some of those products, it will make the introduction of the necessary changes that mm. much harder. The credibility will be questioned. That gets back to our communication conversation we had before. We have to get that stuff right. We yeah. have to make sure that as part of this exercise we're creating good places, good relationships between the jobs, the employment, that gets back again to our earlier conversation, understand what this new economy is, understand the opportunities it presents yeah. around this shaping. But it's critical to get places right. I mean, I, I can't overemphasize yeah. the significance of getting that right. So it sounds to me under your leadership we're really going to be focusing on a place-based planning system in New South Wales and Sydney, which would be wonderful from my perspective you you, you agree is that, oh, look, or is this, is this ultimately where you'd like to go no look i you, you use the word under my leadership it's it's, it's certainly one of those things where under my participation uh, okay. guidance leadership under your whatever. guidance no but it's it's, a, it's an interesting question it provides me with the opportunities being chief planner hmm. to raise some of those questions to yep. raise some of the um issues just like we are in this interview hmm. about the opportunities that are presented i think the opportunities have been presented i think yep. the infrastructure investment the shaping the context of Sydney, I think the opportunities are there. We do have to get our head around what's the um, what's the implication of the new employment model, what's the implications of the um, suburban to urban. But I yeah. think the ingredients that we got are are, are very positive. Yeah. It's, it's going to be really important that we get that that right as we go through. Now, the final question I ask every one of our uh, guests on Talking Cities is, if I gave you a magic wand and you could apply any of your favourite aspects of cities around the world, it could be Milan, um, to Sydney, what uh, what would some of the moves you'd make with that magic wand be? Gosh, I think my magic wand would be to... to to simplify the planning system mm. and to get it into the right context to align with good strategic planning. I say that's my magic wand mm. because that can be a drawn-out transitioning process. Mm. And if if I could uh, possibly do it, do it close the gap and, and go from where we are now to the type of mechanics that enable what we were talking mm. about earlier, it would be to, to, to wave that magic wand and, and, and shift us from a, a very regulatory-focused, mm. precautionary model to much more of a model where we're we're achieving um, we're achieving these the strategic outcomes, and and I'll probably just finish on this one line. I was having a conversation with a, a senior official in the last three months, and we were talking about a particular precinct in Sydney, and I was I was talking about taking a strategic approach to it, and our conversation went on for about five or ten minutes, and I I, I just stopped the conversation. I said to this particular gentleman, I said. You've never worked outside Sydney, have you? Mm. And he sort of a little bit taken aback and sort of, why would you say that, Gary? I said, well, you spent the last 15 minutes telling me what you don't want, mm. but you haven't told me once what mm. you do want. Yeah. That's the difference between a precautionary approach to planning, because yeah. you're worrying about all the things you don't want, as opposed to a strategic approach to planning, which focuses on the outcome and the delivery. And that conversation is probably a good spot for me to finish. That, that's a fantastic spot. It's very aspirational. We've got to think about what we do want and how we enable that in our planning system. And that's what planning's all about. Yeah. I was told recently that's a bit, uh, Gary, you, you, you're, you're a bit aspirational on your opinions. And I said, well, as chief planner, surely that's what you'd want of me. So, yes, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna, and that's what I think planning's all about. That's great. Gary, thanks so much for joining us on Talking City today. It's been great to have you as a guest. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 
Yeah, and we're looking forward to publishing this and no doubt everyone will be interested in hearing about uh, your views on New South Wales and hopefully people that are listening around the world as well. We've got listeners in the US, we've got listeners in uh, in Europe as well. Can look up Gary, uh, learn a bit about his career and uh, if you've got any questions, of course, you can send that through to talkingcities at aecom.com. Thanks very much, Gary. Thanks a lot. Cheers. 